This is On Location. I'm Tim Leitner. Today's episode comes to you on location from Washington, D.C., California, and Alaska. But first, On Location is produced by the NCA Communications Committee with special production assistance from Joe Manley and me. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcast, Breaker, iHeartRadio, and Radio Public, among others. So subscribe today on your favorite podcast service and tell all your friends. Join Emily Jernigan with the California Department of Child Support Services and myself, Tim Leitner, with CGI Technologies and Solutions Incorporated, as we welcome back Tom Joseph with Paragon Government Relations to the podcast. Listen as Tom gives current updates on what is occurring on the Hill from a new Speaker of the House to bills and legislation, including administrative and legislative movement on the IRS and FTI issue and the current extension to 2024. Tom provides information and context for what is happening in our federal government and tells what might be expected. It's going to be a great show, so stick around, and we'll be right back. Hello, and welcome to another edition of NCIA On Location, dedicated to helping child support professionals continue their professional and personal development. Today, we are coming to you from Washington, D.C., California, and Alaska. I'm Emily Jernigan of the California Department of Child Support Services, and I'm pleased to be joined by my co-host for today's conversation, Tim Leitner of CGI out of Anchorage, Alaska. Hello, Tim. Hey, well, thank you, Emily. I'm glad to be with you. And today we bring you an update from the Hill with our special guest, Tom Joseph, from Paragon Government Relations. Many of you may recall Tom on the podcast this past May, beginning a recurring segment to connect what is happening at the federal level up on the Hill with a child support program, including policy. None other better suited to keep us updated than Tom Joseph. Welcome, Tom. And if you would, please share with our audience a little bit about yourself, what you do, just let us know about you. Thanks, Tim, and thanks to Emily. It's, it's good to be back, and I look forward to our, our conversation. As far as my background goes, my professional life since the 1980s has been advocating here in D.C. for public sector clients, mainly counties and national organizations. I began my career at the National Association of Counties, where I ultimately became their deputy legislative director in charge of policy development and also helping oversee the, uh, the efforts of the 10 lobbyists on, on staff there. After about 16 years then there, I was recruited by Los Angeles County 
to create a Washington, D.C. office for them. I was a full-time L.A. County employee. I did a lot of their health and human services advocacy and helped oversee some contract lobbyists that L.A. County had here in D.C. And then after about seven years of that uh, job, I was approached by the firm that I now manage uh, with my business partner. It's Paragon Government Relations. And most of our work is with with counties, uh, state associations of counties, and national organizations such as ENSIA. I became part of the ENSIA family in 2010 to advocate on the association's behalf. I got to know ENSIA uh, a few years before that when I was lobbying for L.A. County on restoring the Deficit Reduction Act's elimination of the Child Support Performance Incentive Match. At that time, I was walking the halls with Vicki Turetsky, who was then staff with the Center for Law and Social Policy, and who, as many of your listeners know, then became the Child Support Commissioner during the Obama administration. Uh, so I, you know, it's been it's a been a good good run. I really enjoy working with NCA members. Uh, they all have huge jobs, but still find the time to advance the work of child support nationally, including developing policy positions, responding to federal regulations, and advancing federal legislation. So it's, it's a great group to, to work for and, and with. Well, thank you for joining us today, Tom. We're so excited to get an update from the Hill and understand a little bit more about how our child support program is affected. Can you tell us a little bit about the recent holding pattern with the House of Representatives and how we got there? Ah, yes, the holding pattern. Um, it's been quite the fall. The House was indeed in a holding pattern for the first three weeks of October, while they tried over and over and over again to agree upon a new uh, new speaker. And whenever they tried to land a new speaker from that holding pattern, he crashed and burned. It took a lot of time for that to take place and settle on a new speaker. It it basically started at the end of September when the then Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, had to work with a few Democrats to avoid a federal shutdown. But he had a, a, a significant group of fiscally conservative members from the House Freedom Caucus who vehemently objected to him working with the Democrats. And in fact, they wanted to make some deep cuts to domestic spending before they would uh, agree to continuing uh, the federal government. So that small handful of Republicans voted with the Democrats to remove Kevin McCarthy from speakership. Uh, It was a vote of 216 to 210. And it was the first time in history that that had ever happened. So at that point, House Republicans had about 21 days or so of very acrimonious debates behind closed doors on who would be their next speaker. Um, Some of those meetings stretched into the, the wee hours. And about the only pictures we saw in the paper and in the media that the press took were of, of very tall stacks of pizza boxes outside of the uh, outside of the meeting room that were being delivered. 
Um, during that time, uh, the House Republicans voted on and rejected three candidates, all candidates in very high levels of uh, GOP leadership. It was Jim Jordan of Ohio, Steve Scalise of Louisiana, and Tom Emmert from Minnesota. But I think by the end of that third week, the caucus was just really exhausted, and they had hard feelings all around, and they were finally just tired of being in this holding pattern. And now that we have a Speaker of the House elected, what does that mean for us in the child support community? Did this affect getting issues before the Ways and Means Committee that had a bearing on child support? Good question, Emily. And, and first, why don't I step back and, and talk a little bit about, about the new speaker, um, because um, he really was a relatively unknown member. He's friendly and he's not bombastic. So I think those were two uh, positive things for him. He also, unlike some of the other um, candidates, hasn't developed any enemies. And it's been a very toxic uh, place on the Hill lately. So if, if he had no enemies, that helped him very much as well. So let me give you a little background on him so you can get a sense of, of, of the challenges he's gonna face. Speaker Johnson is from a very conservative district in Louisiana. He's serving in his fourth term. He's never had a competitive congressional race. And before then, he was in the state legislature. He was a talk show host and is a constitutional lawyer by, by training. Given the fact that he's been in Congress for only seven years, his legislative and leadership track record is, is pretty short. In fact, he's the least experienced speaker elected in the last 140 years, given his, uh, given his tenure in, in the House. He's never chaired a committee. He did serve on the GOP leadership team, but his role on that team was to schedule for his colleagues the, the one-minute speeches that they can provide on the floor. Um, he was not part of the daily management meeting of the Republicans. And until his election as speaker, he had a staff of, of 12 people, of which eight had just been um, brought on his uh, staff this year. He's now in the process of hiring a much larger staff. He is hiring some seasoned staff who don't necessarily have a long history with them, but they know the, uh, the ins and the outs of the, of the Congress. Um, He's now has to work closely with a, a leadership team of, of members who wanted to have his job, frankly, Scalise and, and Jordan and Emmert and McCarthy. And in most respects, he still faces the same fractured and contentious GOP that McCarthy faced. Uh, little really has changed and the hard feelings that have developed over the past couple of months just won't go away quickly. Looking across the Hill, the Speaker has no relationships on the Senate side, which is it's an important thing to have when you enter into negotiations on budgets to, to know your, your, your colleagues on, on the Senate side. He just met uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell for the first time 
last week. And frankly, there were few Republican senators who said publicly that they Googled Mike Johnson's name when he was up for the speaker job. And the first hit before Mike Johnson was elected was a Mike Johnson who starred on a past Bachelorette TV show. So that just so, sort of goes to show how how a relatively mild-mannered um, person with only seven years' experience is now um, tasked with a huge job. He's third in line in succession for the presidency, and he, he's got a very tall order in terms of learning the, the process in terms of leadership. On policies, um, the speaker is very hard to the right. He voted to overturn the 2020 elections and was part of the leadership team and uh, as part of, of lawyers to, to do so. Um, he opposes gay marriage. He is in favor of a hard nationwide ban on abortion. And in terms of health and human services programs, um, he has stated that SNAP, the food stamp program, is, quote, one of the nation's most broken and bloated welfare programs. So his election doesn't offer much on, on, on child support, and I don't think he will have much effect on child support. Ways and Means Committee and leadership there um, is already relatively conservative, and and the speaker has said that he is going to give a lot of leeway to the committees to develop those policies. So I, that's sort of, in a nutshell, the the new the new speaker and and what he faces over over the next couple of months and and years. Boy, Tom, it sounds like there's a lot of challenges ahead, not just for the speaker, but for us in terms of seeing what comes about. Yeah, I, I, I don't envy, I don't envy the speaker. It's, you know, he's, he's got a, he has a very tough job. So speaking of tough jobs and tough things, let's talk about the administrative and legislative movement on the IRS and FTI issue. Now, I know since the last time you joined us, we were all waiting to hear what's happening with this, and I believe there was an extension. But tell us what the current situation is and what efforts have continued from NCA and I think also NCCSD and others. Sure, um, happy to happy to update you all on on that. You know, first first as a refresher for for the listeners. This is the issue dealing with uh, the confidentiality of federal taxpayer information and and the access by by contractors to uh, use that information and in helping agencies offset federal tax refunds. Um, the the bill or the issue originally came to the forefront many years ago when tribes, in partnership with NCA and others worked and advocated for direct access to the federal tax refund offset program. This year, early this year in February, uh, the IRS sent a uh, security and privacy alert memo to child support agencies, essentially saying that when they pursue tax refund offsets, 
that agencies could no longer share with contractors any tax information other than three data elements, the address, social security number, and the amount of past due support subject to offset. The memo that came out, that memo essentially upended decades of practice that agencies that shared more than that limited data set with a signal from both the Federal Child Support Office and the IRS that they said to agencies that it was okay to do so as long as the privacy of the information was protected. Let me stop here because I think you may be hearing Phoebe beep. (laughs) Just a second. So I apologize for the listeners. You may have heard my dog Phoebe beeping, uh, squeezing a little toy in the background. That that meant that she was closely tracking my my update on on the IRS FTI issue. So IRS and and child support, the federal child support uh, office, for two decades basically said to agencies it was okay to to gather for contractors to have access to a few more sets of data as long as that information was was protected. However, over those years, the IRS did make findings for the vast majority of agencies that they were indeed, you know, sharing more than those three pieces of information, but the IRS held those findings in abeyance and and no penalties resulted from that practice. But this memo in February um, set a date of October 1 of this year for, for compliance. Fast forward a little bit, a lot of activity ensued, NCIA, NCCSD, tribal reps held meetings with Ways and Means and Center Finance Committee staff on the issue. Discussions were held with IRS and child support leadership and child support leadership from from the various entities affected that are based here in DC uh, had meetings on the Hill with with staff. In June, IRS did come out with a a revised memo that pushed the compliance date back by a year to October 1 of 2024. And by that time, states have to have corrective action plans in place. Tim, as you know, the, the stakes are enormous for, for most agencies. At least 42 states and territories have an IRS finding. Um, so it's very much uh, the top legislative priority for the child support community. And there is some good news. Late last month, um, Senator Thune from South Dakota, Republican from South Dakota, and Senate Finance Committee Chair Ron Wyden from Oregon did reintroduce a modified version of the Tribal Child Support Enforcement Act. The bill number is S-3154, and it's been a bill that's been around for a number of sessions. And it was initially intended to provide tribal governments with the same direct access to the tax offset program that state partners have. But the issue of contractor access to the data has become paramount. The bill, the modified bill, now does have language that was approved by the IRS 
and the Office of Child Support Services, and it's supported by, by NCIA. And there still continues to be a lot of support in the Senate where it was uh, adopted unanimously in 2021. But even with that new language, we continue to appear to be hitting a wall with the Ways and Means staff on the Democratic side who still have some concerns over the privacy of information that contractors have access to. Um, we're working pretty closely with Representative Gwen Moore, who represents uh, Mil the Milwaukee area of Wisconsin, who also serves on the subcommittee of jurisdiction over this issue, the Work and Welfare Subcommittee. And we're working with her to try to work with other Democrats to address these concerns. I still have some hope that we'll see action on it. It's been a very long haul, um, but at least we've got a bill to move on, a bill that, again, um, is uh, has been cleared by IRS and the Office of Child Support Services. Yeah, I'm glad we still have that in play and that that hasn't just um, gone to the wayside. And it's going to be so important for that Tribal Child Support Enforcement Act or, or, or bill to pass or to have movement on it and to really help those families that need that federal offset program monies coming in. So, Thomas, you've mentioned in June, Congress averted a debt limit breach. Can you fill us in on what happened and were SNAP and TANF provisions included in this legislation? So, Tim, that, that yes, that was the, the bill uh, at that point. We we're also approaching a, a federal shutdown. That was the bill where Congress was uh, and the federal government were about to breach the, the debt limit, which meant that they could no longer borrow to uh, pay for existing obligations. Um, they did pass a, a bill that essentially kicked the debt limit breach conversation down the road until January 1 of 2025, right past the, uh, the elections. So no member of Congress or senators or even in the presidential race would they need to talk about the debt in terms of doing anything about it before 2025. But in that bill, there were a couple of provisions uh, with respect to the Supplemental Nutrition Program and, and TANF. I'm not going to get too far into the weeds because I'll lose, I'll lose the listeners on it. But let me give you some of the high-level nuggets. Um, the changes to SNAP uh, included raising the age by which income-eligible uh, single adults without dependents had to meet some work requirements. Um, they lifted the age from 49 to 54 over the next two years. Um, the bill also uh, uh, exempted um, from the requirements um, any income-eligible individuals who were veterans, who are unhoused, or are youth transitioning from, from foster care. So states right now are in the process of implementing those those SNAP uh, work requirements, as well as some changes that they uh, need to make to get some exemptions for meeting some of those new work requirements. With respect to TANF, uh, the changes to the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program essentially focused on how states uh, need to make 
and meet certain work requirements and report on employment outcomes. So they didn't, those changes did not directly affect um, program participants. And uh, next year under this new law, the law establishes a six-year pilot program for states, for up to five states, to negotiate with HHS a, a new set of measurable benchmarks for work and family outcomes for TANF families. It would replace uh, an outdated work participation requirement target and those sanctions uh, during the demonstration program's dur duration and allow states to experiment with new ways of moving families off of welfare and, and into work. So yes, some, some, some changes, but uh, not major ones. And again, the, the debt relief bill essentially kicked the can down the road for further discussion about debt relief until 2025. Well, Tom, it might be an understatement to say that the House and Senate pursue different paths on spending bills, but talk to us about what it looks like in this current 118th United States Congress. What are Senate and House Democrats and Republicans approaches shaping up to look like? Yes, on, on uh, understatements. I think it really is, Emily, it's an understatement to say that uh, the House and Senate are pursuing different paths on the fiscal year 2024 spending bills. In fact, I, I would argue that they're pursuing different paths on different planets. They're not even on the they're not even on the same planet right now. The the House is has been drafting fiscal year 24 appropriations bills, which include cuts of up to 20 to 30 percent, including the labor HHS bill. You know, take a deep breath that those those cuts are not going to happen. Um, they're very partisan. Uh, it's a very partisan bill. And some Republicans in competitive districts, competitive congressional districts are having heartburn and are being concerned, are concerned about those cuts as well. Those cuts are never going to have a chance of passing the Senate. Um, in the Senate, all 12 spending bills have been passed at the committee level on very overwhelming bipartisan votes. Um, in fact, like the labor HHS bill passed the Senate, the Senate committee um, by a vote of 26 to two. So I think, you know, even though the bills are on different paths and on different planets, um, it's at the moment hard to see how those planets are gonna align especially, you know, given the fact that November 17th, 10 days from, from now, um, we face yet another federal shutdown. Um, that's when the current, uh, current continuing resolution expires. And the federal government may shut down, but I, my expectation is that even though they're on different paths and different planets right now, the House in particular is going to give the speaker, the new speaker, some breathing room. And with the Senate um, being adamant about passing a short-term resolution without any spending cuts, that the House may follow suit by no November 17th. 
that's my hope. That's sort of my belief. Um, but having said that, I do know that right before this podcast, the the House just uh, the House GOP left one of their closed door meetings, and they announced that they had no path forward yet on on a shutdown. Um, but we have ten days, and a lot um, can happen in in that time. My guess is we will probably see an extension of current spending until mid December, where we will yet again see debates on how to further uh, further extend government spending. It's also important, Emily and, and Tim, to note that when you look at a possible federal shutdown, some of the big health and human services programs that are administered by, by states and local governments, such as Medicaid, SNAP, and foster care, they're they're fine. They will be their major entitlements that will be okay for a number of months, including including child support. So ma- no matter what happens in the short run, those major entitlements, because of the way that they're funded by the federal government, will essentially continue to operate even if the federal government shuts down. But it's it's very much a stay tuned process. So. Tom, in early July, the House Ways and Means Work and Welfare Subcommittee held a hearing focused on reclaiming TANF non-assistance dollars. Can you fill us in a little bit about this? Sure, Tim. Yeah, you're you're right. The the House Ways and Means Committee, the Subcommittee on Work and Welfare, did hold a hearing on non-assistance. When when we talk about TANF and non-assistance program, we're essentially talking about sort of the this, what I would maybe call soft services, um, non, you know, not the cash assistance portion of TANF, but services providing TANF participants perhaps with childcare or making sure that they don't get involved in the child welfare system or providing them with transportation to job training or or jobs. The bill focused primarily on the fraudulent use of of TANF funds in Mississippi, where that state had been using funds to, unfortunately, build uh, volleyball courts and other other items that were were clearly outside of the the bounds of of the TANF program. It was worth noting that in that hearing that the members did not allege fraud and abuse by by recipients. Both sides of the aisle also, though, noted that a lot of states were providing a relatively low level of cash assistance, and a lot of states weren't providing robust employment and education options. So those kinds of issues, you know, low cash assistance rates and uh, employment and training opportunities would need to be addressed in terms of policy through a reauthorization bill but there hasn't been one introduced yet. And as as you may recall, um, TANF is typically the vehicle uh, when it's being reauthorized in which child support changes are are made. So we will, again, with this issue, like with the appropriations process, we'll have to stay tuned. I don't expect any quick action, uh, Tim, on a TANF reauthorization, however. 
So, Tom, while we're quickly approaching another major election cycle with a year left until November 2024, and our listeners must be well aware of this with the news and, and all of the information coming out of D.C., do you foresee any new legislation being taken up that affects child support or any opportunities in the short window? You know, I, I think, Tim, that, you know, next year is, as you would guess, I think, is going to be consumed by presidential and congressional election politics. I really don't see much happening legislatively. I think that child support will remain above that toxic fray. There may be some House messaging bills to limit benefits for SNAP or tighten Medicaid eligibility that House members may may use on the campaign trail, but those bills aren't going to be adopted in the Senate. So I think we'll hear a lot of a lot of noise next year, but very little action on child support or or anything else for that matter. Tom, are there any last words that you want to leave our listeners with or anything that came to mind during our discussion today? Maybe even something that bears repeating? Sure. Um, thanks for the question, Emily. You know, I think as you probably gathered from my observations today and by the reports in the media that the democratic process is messy and it's become even more messy and chaotic the last few years. But when you look at child support, the child support program remains a bipartisan program federally. And I think, you know, uh, child support leaders need to continue to tout the good work of the program that it does for for children, that it's child support's the, the third largest program federally that touches uh, families after Medicaid and, and SNAP, and that it's a program that is well-performing. It provides over $5 per in support for every $1 invested. So I, I, I think my, my final thoughts are with that we, you know, we just need to continue to remind our federal Democratic and Republican friends that there are good things that, that government can do for their residents and child support is part of that equation. What a wonderful update. Well, we want to thank our guest today, Tom Joseph of Paragon Government Relations for joining us. Thanks so much, Tom. It's been a pleasure to have you back on the program and engage with you and listen as you share what affects us, our state, counties, and tribal child support programs. And thank you to our listeners for listening today and every week. By the way, as you all know, last week we surpassed 10,000 all-time plays for On Location. I'm Emily Jernigan. And I'm Tim Leitner. And this has been On Location. On Location is available on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. We have a lot of great episodes on the way, so be sure to subscribe and listen to all of our previous episodes as well. We also appreciate your ratings, your feedback, your comments, and your suggestions. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please reach out to us on the contact link on our website. 
On Location is a production of the NCA Communications Committee with special production assistance from Joe Mamlin and me. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Tim Leitner, and this has been On Location. <laughs>